I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 24. I, I got to tell you something. The first day that we shut down and I had to talk to a camera, I got nervous. I'm nervous again today. I'm not used to having all you people here. <laughs> it's wonderful to see all your faces. Thanks for, for joining us. Let me share a little bit about how I came to be here. Uh, it was 2002. I was an intern. Uh, our pastor got ill, and we didn't know how long he was going to be ill, but we knew he wasn't going to be there the next Sunday. And um, the elders came to me and said, can you preach a sermon? I said, yeah, I think I can do that. I'd done it once or twice before. And so I, I came in and I preached a sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um, I didn't even know what exposition meant back then, uh, but I went through Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, verse by verse. And it was just a little precursor of what was to come. Uh, well, over the next couple weeks, we found out that the pastor was going to be ill for quite some time. The doctors were telling us 18 to 24 months. And again, the elders came to me and said, well, we don't have anybody to lead the church, but we don't want a new pastor. Can you do this for 18 to 24 months? And I'd just come off of a retail career where I could do anything. And I went, sure, I can do this. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I had no concept of what was to come. So the question was, could I do the job? So last week, we found out that there was a cost to discipleship. And the question that we asked last week, are, how much will you pay? How much will you pay to be a follower of Jesus Christ? How much will you pay to, to exist in eternity in his presence? How much will you pay to be an overcomer, to be with Jesus forever? And we saw that following Christ is worth whatever we had to sacrifice in order to be with him. And now we're going to see what following him looks like. Now, as I got into this, uh, I realized there's a, there was a lot more here than I had anticipated. So I'm going to break this sermon up into two sections. Uh, so here are the two sections now, and then Scott has a short series he's going to start next week. I'll be back on the 15th, and I'll do part two. But part, part one of this is the job, the job that we have as disciples, and that is, Job, uh, that is Luke chapter 1, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. That's part one. Part two on the 15th will be verse 17 through 24. So the sermon title for both parts is The Job and a Joy. This is part one of the job and the joy. Today's passage is also divided up into two sets of guidelines for this. So we're going to see the guideline for the job in verses 1 through 11, and then we'll see the guideline for the stakes. In other words, what is up for all this? What, what, what does a job mean? What are the stakes for doing the job right? And that's going to be in verses 12 through 16. So as with any job, a good manager will take his employees and explain how to do the job. They'll give training, on-the-job on the training, maybe classroom training. So they're going to give them guidelines for how to do the job. And we're about to see Jesus give the guidelines to his disciples for how they are to walk this task out. Starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, in the previous passage, we saw him send out 12. He gave him power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, uh, preach the word, 
and they came back, and they, they were pretty successful. There's a lot of uh, excitement over that. So, and right after we saw that, we saw three people come forward that wanted to follow Jesus Christ. Now, that passage seemed a little bit sharp, uh, but the bottom line was that they didn't want to pay the price that had to be paid to be a follower of Christ. They didn't want to sacrifice the things that need to be sacrificed to be a faithful follower of Christ. So now we're going to see how the work of the ministry works out. So not everybody is willing to be a follower. What about those that are willing to follow? And we're going to find out that the work of the ministry, I mean, we saw that the first thing we saw in the 12 was that Jesus is not going to do all the ministry. His job was to equip uh, those who follow him to go out and do the work in ministry. And so he sent the 12 out. Now, those were the, the 12, I put in quotation marks. They're the leaders. They're the ones that, that would move forward and build the church after Jesus leaves. Today we find out that there's more, that the work is not done by a select few. The work is not accomplished by the elite of the group. And we find that when Jesus sends out 72. Now, numbers are important in the Bible, and so we need to pay attention to them. But this number here, it, you know, it, I've seen efforts to try to break it down. Well, it's this, or maybe it's that. But what it is, it, it's, it's 72. And what the Jews would hear is, well, wait a minute. I, I thought it was 12. No, there's a lot more than 12. A matter of fact, this is probably a good bit of the group that is following Jesus faithfully. So what the Jews would hear is, wait, there's a lot of people going out to do the work of the ministry. And so the job description, if we understand what Luke is trying to say, is a job description that, that Jesus is about to lay out in front of them is for everybody who follows Jesus Christ. Everybody works at this at some capacity. So in verse 2, Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. How many have heard this before? <laughs> Almost everybody's heard this particular passage, the, the fields are white in the harvest, but there aren't very many laborers. So he likens the lost, the people that he's sending these people out to, to preach the gospel to, to a harvest season. And he says, there's plenty of produce out there to be harvested, but there's not enough workers. And so what Jesus is saying is, you know, they're thinking, oh, 72, a lot of people. He said, that's not enough. 72 people aren't enough to change the world. There are going to be more. So our, we need to think about this for a second. Because at this particular point, there, are, there, there is no church. There, there, there isn't even a group of people called Christians. Jesus is turning to his followers and saying, I want you to go out. And, and reap the harvest. There's, there's a huge harvest out there, and, and we don't have very many workers. I think this is a parallel of where we are right now as a nation. Our nation is a harvest field. And I've got to tell you something. There aren't very many workers. There aren't enough to do the job. And 
A lot of the workers that are here that understand all this are distracted by personalities. They're distracted by issues that are non-biblical. They're distracted by everything, but what we should have our eyes set on is Christ and portraying Christ to the, the field that is white unto harvest. See, that's the picture that the 72 were seeing. You, you want us to go out and do this? Do you realize how big this country is? It's almost 30 miles wide. And if we go the length, it's almost 110 miles long. This is a vast country. And you want us to go out and teach these things? We don't know how to do this. The job's too big. Even now, many of us would say, what can I do? The nation's too big. And I'm but one person. How much impact can I have on the destiny of the nation? The 72 were feeling the same way. But remember this. Jesus is just, back then, he's just beginning to lay the groundwork for how the ministry is going to go forward, for how things are going to go after he's gone. These, these are the training days. We, we started with that about four sermons ago. These are the training days. They're the first days of Jesus' people being out in the field. And the difference between them and us is we've got the advantage all over them because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus sends them out and he says, this is how you do it. Go out and do this. Maybe you're not going to be all effective and everything. Don't worry about that because I know you need help. And after I leave, I'm going to send you a helper. Now, we're familiar with that phrase too, aren't we? The Holy Spirit is our helper to help us do what? Oh, to be a better person. To help us with the harvest. That's what he's here to help us with. To help us represent Jesus Christ to the world around us. To help us be and live the gospel that we're charged with carrying. The job's still big. And even, even understanding that we have the Holy Spirit, we don't always know what to do, but we can look to these first 72 for guidance. And if we, if we take a look at what's about to happen, we're going to find out 72 really aren't all that effective. But they're the first ones to use the template. They're the first ones to use the guidelines that are given. And, and if we understand that, that they're just the first ones and that Jesus is trying to equip his body, then we understand that the 72 is us. We're the 72. We're the ones that Jesus built the template for. We're the ones that he laid the foundation of the church for. We're the 72. And Jesus knows that we need help. So he gives us the guidelines here in Luke, and later on he sends us the Holy Spirit. So what are those guidelines? What does he want us to do? I've read a ton of books on how to grow a church. They all say, do these things. Do these things. Send these emails out. Put these advertisements up. Have these programs in place. Take a look at Jesus' guidelines. Watch this. This is 2B, the second half of verse 2. Therefore... 
come up with a new program. Therefore, have, have a great advertising program. Therefore, paint your church in this color, play this type of music. Therefore, pray earnestly. Pray. For what? To the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The first guideline, maybe the most important of them all, is to pray. Pray for what? That God will send more laborers. Oh, yes, Lord, send more laborers. Where are the laborers going to come from? They're going to come from the church down the street, probably. We need help. Let's get other Christians to come in here and help us. Where are the laborers going to come from? They're not going to come from other churches. There were no other churches. The laborers are going to come from the evangelistic efforts of the 72 and the ones that are being sent out. They're not going to come from other parts of the body. They're going to come from our going out. So the prayer is for the body of Christ to grow so that there will be more workers for the harvest. Wow, there's an idea. I want you to just think about this for a second. Because our primary job in reaping the harvest, I, I mean, we need, to have, we need to have direction, we need to have programs, we need to have some structure, we need to have all that. But our primary job it's to pray. It's to pray. Now, we've heard all the teaching on one body, many gifts. Amen? We all know that. We all have a different gift we bring. If we're all exercising our gift, then the body should function pretty smoothly. But there's, there's that one thing that all of us can do is to pray. To pray that there will be a harvest that God will send workers, that we'll be faithful to do the things that we're called to do. The second guideline is a little bit more challenging than the first because we can all pray. Amen? I know you people at home are saying amen. Thank you. The second guideline is for us to depend on God for everything. I, I just love Jimmy's catechism. God made everything. He made everything. And so when we hear, depend on God for everything, uh, it, it's easy for us to kind of nod our head and go, yes, but it means to depend on God for everything. Look how he sends them out. Verse 3, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Ah, why would God do that? Wolves are dangerous. They can tear lambs to to bits so uh, you know I look at this and go oh my there's some risk in this call they're sending us into a place where, where we might have to sacrifice everything but let me tell you how the Jews would have heard this because there would be Jesus creating imagery that the people who are standing around him would totally understand right away. They would understand that if, if we're sheep, if we're lambs and he's sending us out, then he must be the shepherd. And the shepherd's job is to provide for and protect the sheep. 
So we don't have to worry about our safety because we have the good shepherd, the best shepherd of all time, watching over us and providing for us. We can depend on him. And this sets the tone for the rest of the guidelines that that Jesus is about to lay out. Now, the disciples have already had experiences like this. Jesus and they have been rejected the whole time they're in Samaria. They're still there. And so when, when... the disciples see the Samaritans rejecting Jesus saying, oh, let us call down fire and brimstone and destroy them. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I want you to do. That's not what I called you to do. That's the nature of that rebuke that they receive. I'll take care of them. You just do what I told you to do. I'm the shepherd, I'm the provider, I'm the protector. You just do what I've called you to do. And, and so we see right there that this group of people that has been set apart this this nation church this first inklings of what the church is going to be is defenseless what don't defend yourself don't try and justify yourself don't assert your righteousness over the rest of the people that are the harvest Depend on me. Do what I told you to do. What, what, what a message for our time. Where we feel like the church is under attack, we have to do something. Let me tell you something. The church is going to be here long after you and I are gone. If you have any doubt about that, just read Revelation. The church is all over the place. <laughs> okay, so God doesn't need us to defend the church. He doesn't need us to defend any aspect of the church, listen to carefully what I'm saying, he needs us to be agents of the gospel. He needs us to be the presence of Christ in a dark world that seems to get a little bit darker every day. Jesus doesn't want us defending ourselves. Matter of fact, Jesus wants his disciples to be totally defenseless This is why he uses the words lambs amongst the wolves. What can a lamb do against a wolf? Look at the rest of the guidelines for the job. You think that's interesting. Verse 4, carry no money bag. Okay, so for all all those people that want to say, hey, as the body of Christ, we're supposed to be healing the sick, raising the dead. Well, this is part of that call. Have no money. Nothing to anchor you to this world. Take no knapsack. Now, when he talks about a knapsack, he's talking about itinerant preachers, itinerant teachers used to carry a bag over their shoulder, and they had prepared. They would have their provisions in the bag so that they didn't have to depend on anybody as they were on the road. They could take care of themselves. Jesus said, no, 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 you take no bag, no sandals. If we read the other Gospels, what we're saying is don't take an extra pair of sandals. Total dependence on God for everything. And he says, and by the way, greet no one on the road. Now, the word for greet is salute, and it means don't stop and get waylaid. Don't get distracted from what you've been called to do. Stay on the path. Stay moving forward. Whatever house you enter, verse 5. First say, peace be to this house. Listen carefully. Whatever house you enter, it doesn't say Go into town, find people like you, go over to where the local church is and stay with those people. It says, whatever house you enter, first say, 
peace be to this house. Let me tell you what he's saying here. He said, the first place you say, bless them. The word for peace here is arene. It's a Greek word for peace. And it loosely translated into Hebrew it would be shalom. Okay, but when, when, when the Hebrews say shalom to each other, they're saying, may God be with you. So whatever house you enter, you say, may God be with you. And look at the results of this in 6. If a son of peace, if a child of the kingdom is there, your peace will rest upon him. It will be a blessing. But if not, it will return to you. You say, peace upon this house. If they're not believers, who gets the peace? You do. Totally, totally against any line of reasoning we would think. But God says, be an agent of peace. The blessing will either bless them or bless us. So if you read this carefully enough, you see that we're to be a blessing to all the people we encounter. Let me be clear on this. I'm not saying that we bless everything that we see. Sin is sin, amen? So we, we can't call it something else. But we are to be a blessing, listen carefully, we are to be a blessing to sinners. They're the harvest field. We are to betray Christ to them. Doesn't mean that we assimilate their sin, doesn't mean that we affirm their sin. But in an age where it's very easy to point your finger and say, you're going to burn in hell for that. Jesus says, be a blessing. Verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's before you. So, so he's talking about the wages being for, for the laborer. He's talking about the wages of being hospitality, a place to stay, room and board, a warm meal. Receive all the hospitality that's extended to you graciously and take that, regardless of who it comes from, as provision from God. Verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. And, and so this is signs and wonders. And it's a sign that a, a new age has begun, that the old age is passing away. It's an, it is a promise that those in Christ will receive the ultimate healing from sin and death, which is eternal life. But the main idea is not about the signs and wonders. They may accompany the people of God. They may go before the body of Christ. But the main message that we want to see here is that we are to show them the kingdom, to show them what the kingdom of God looks like, and then tell them about it. Put it in context. And we need to pause and consider that every situation may be different. We may not always be out there and, and seeing the, the, the sick healed and the dead raised. We may see that. It may happen. But the main point is not that. The main point that Luke wants us to, to learn, that he wants to teach us, is that we should trust Jesus for everything and leave the outcome to him. We don't gauge our success by the impact we have, we gauge our success by the fact that the gospel has been spoken and the rest is up to the Holy Spirit between the Holy Spirit and the people that heard the gospel. We're not responsible for their response. 
We leave all the nuts and bolts to Jesus Christ. And if signs manifest themselves, fine. That'll be for the sake of the gospel. But if they don't, see, if there aren't signs and wonders, there are those that would tell us the Holy Spirit's not there. That's not true. If we're there, the Holy Spirit's there. How do we know that? He's in us. Oh, wait a minute, no signs and wonders. I'm sorry, the Spirit didn't show up today. What was he, taking a rest? All that's up to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the work that they do. We leave it all up to him. We're just called to faithfully do our part. And you know what? Not everybody is going to respond positively. It's not going to happen. What do we do then? What, what do we do then when, when people get angry because we shared the gospel? When people say, that's not my belief, or I ought to even drink of that stuff in here. Why are you doing all that? What, what, what do we do? What does Jesus want his followers to do? Watch this, verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go to it, into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, this is very closely related to uh, Mark chapter 6, where Jesus talks about a prophet not being honored in his hometown, and there were no miracles done there. Uh, So if if we kind of put the two passages together, Luke chapter 10 and Mark 6, we see that uh, the signs and the healing in Jesus' time accompany the kingdom of God. And if there aren't any signs or healing as Jesus is there, well, they haven't received the kingdom of God. It's okay. It's okay. His followers do their work. The rest is up to him. The main point that we need to see in all this is that rejection of God robs the people of that town of the nearness of God and the blessings of his presence. Not only will these people miss the blessings, but there's a day coming that they're going to really regret their decision. That's not on our shoulders. It's between them and and, and Christ. What will the disciples do? They move on. You move on. And and you know, I've been told in the past that this shaking the dust off your feet is a gesture of contempt. It's not what it is. It's making sure that you don't carry with you any influence from that town. Think about this, brothers and sisters. As we proclaim the gospel to the people around us, whether they receive it or not, is up to the Holy Spirit and them. Whether or not we become influenced by them is up to us. We're supposed to shake that dust off our feet. So when, when I look at the landscape around me and I see videos, music videos done by people who claim to be Christians. And you know what? Our kids are all watching them. Oh, they, they say they're a Christian. It's fantastic. But you watch it. There, there's an absence of clothing. <laughs> there's spirits being called. There's, there's evil influences going on. And, and that's the dust that we need to shake off our feet. Because this is attractive. And it comes from somebody who says, yes, I know Jesus Christ. But they're not acting like it. 
We put people up on a pedestal because they're a celebrity. And if they say, yes, I'm born again, then, then we give them credibility that we need to be very careful of giving them. I'm not saying they're not born again. All I'm saying is we've got to be very careful what sort of influence is entering our lives because we like them and they say they're Christians. But when somebody says they're a Christian and acts otherwise, we need to shake that dust off our feet, not emulate them. And we do it. We do it without contempt, without judgment, without self-righteousness. We just move on, placing our trust in Christ and depending on him for everything. So what do we do? We bless them on the way out. I mean, that's what he's saying. You know, if the town doesn't receive you, bless them. Give them one final word of the gospel. Tell them the kingdom of God is near. Love you guys. Goodbye. Shake the dust off your feet. Now we do this. We do this because the stakes are incredibly high. Highest they've ever been. Verse 12. I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now Jesus starts naming towns. This would have particular significance to the Jews. The Jews knew that Sodom was the root of evil. They knew that God's wrath and vengeance fell down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, when you leave the town and they reject Jesus, they have now heard the gospel and turned their back on him. It's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom. The Jews would be quaking in their feet. These people have no excuse. And ultimately their fate is going to be worse than the very worst fate that you can possibly think of. And now Jesus moves from the judgment that's going to come on these towns that reject him, uh, uh, the, the ones that have clearly turned their back on him, to something a bit more specific. And this would be a huge surprise to his listeners. He moves from the lost to the self-righteous. The towns that call themselves holy, yet reject his only son. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon for you. Jesus mentions Tyre and Sidon. It's significant. Both of them are condemned. In Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, three prophets prophesy against these cities. They're judged for being ungodly and wicked. They became symbols to the Jews of what happens to the people of cities that turn their back on God. Everyone knew what they were. Oh, wait a minute. He's likening Tyre and Sidon to... What is in? Bethsaida? No, 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 no. Those, those are where the good people are. And Jesus says the good people are the ones who receive him. And, and because they call themselves godly people, judgment will be harsher on them than on the ones that are obviously evil. This is momentous 
And look at this in verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus says, for those Jewish towns that he's been in and have turned their back on him, that they will end up worse than Tyre and Sidon, even, even the town that he called his hometown for a while. There might have been people in that town that thought they were blessed because Jesus lived there. They didn't receive Jesus. The judgment's going to be harder on them. And the towns are prophesied to be desolate. Let me show you something here. There, all these towns that he mentions are within five miles of each other. Stars on the map here. They're, they're, they're gathered around Jesus' home base for a while. And they should have known. They should have seen everything that he did. Here's what they look like today. So Jesus says those towns are going to be cursed. Look, here's Chorazin. Right there. The, the, the remains of of a temple in, in Chorazin. Here's what Bethsaida looks like. 2,000 years later, we got stones and rubble. And here's Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, where Peter lived, where his mother was. There's a house in the middle of this town. There's nothing there. I think God is giving us a snapshot of what life apart from Christ looks like. It is desolate. It is empty. It is ruins that are falling down on each other. And here's the scary part of this. It lasts forever. It's for eternity. For those who reject Jesus Christ, the stakes are eternal. So how... How can we avoid this? How can we help people that they're just sitting on the precipice of eternity, looking on one side, the abyss, the lake of fire, looking on the other side, eternity of grace and mercy and love? Well, we just saw what the job was. We're the 72. So we, we pray. We depend on God for everything. We're not self-sufficient in any area of our lives. We bless everyone with peace. We show them and then we tell them about the kingdom. It's on our lips. It's in our lives. It's in the way we act. We bless them even if they reject us. We bless them even if they're mad at us. And what we're going to find out if we follow the biblical narrative is we bless them even if they kill us. We don't carry any offense with us, but nor do we pick up any influence from the ungodly. We're set apart. Brothers and sisters, we are set apart for the sake of the gospel. We are empowered and protected by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. And the question for us is, are we willing to do the job? Are we willing to be the people that God has called us to be? I was willing back in 2002. <laughs> but I didn't know what I was asking for. <laughs> And it's taken me 18 years. I'm not sure I've learned a lesson yet. 
but I desperately needed the help and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life if I was ever going to do what I was being called to do. Brother, that's you and me. Sister, that's you and me. We desperately need the Holy Spirit moving in us, guiding us, counseling us, empowering us. If we're going to do the things that we're called to do, we need that because we're the 72.